Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Um, happy New Year to all! This is our first uh, our first broadcast in uh, 2020, and uh, joining us today is uh, someone who I've been following uh, for quite a bit of time. I think it's been a very one sided <laughs> one sided relationship so far. Uh, this is uh, Nick Salazar of TriRig, um, and uh, I first uh, came upon Nick's website um, when he was writing about you know, other people's bikes. And uh, over time, he's started manufacturing aftermarket parts. Um, and now he has his own bike, uh, the Omni. Uh, Nick's story is uh, is pretty cool, but I'm going to let him tell it to us. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. And uh, I'm, I'm so happy to now contribute to this relationship that I didn't know existed. <laughs> it was a little bit, it was a little bit voyeuristic up until this point. <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of how things started. Like you were saying, uh, I started TriRig as a site trying to draw uh, interested readers like yourself. So it's <laughs> nothing voyeuristic about it. I was I was writing about triathlon equipment because there really wasn't anything out there at the time uh, when I started TriRig at, in 2010 um, that was dedicated exclusively to uh, review of triathlon equipment. There was a bunch of stuff that was triathlon in general. And there was a bunch of stuff that was road equipment, but nothing that was tri-specific equipment. Uh, there still really isn't much out there. There's some now, but I think we were pretty much the first tri-specific equipment review site out there. And when did you launch your site? June 2010. Okay. Or maybe July 1st, 2010. No, you're um, coming up on your uh, your tenure. That's right. I know. We're really excited. I, I can't believe it's been this long. Yeah. I mean. That's awesome. Uh, there's a, there's a fair bit of turnover in this industry and I've seen a lot of it and it's been, it's been wild to be doing this kind of crazy thing just out of my house and been able to stick with it and been able to make it a career, uh, even seeing so much turnover and so much change in the industry. That's awesome. Cause I think that's the dream for a lot of people, you know, that's uh, people who are passionate about the sport and, uh, you know, would love to make a, a, a go of a job of it that's uh that's the dream yeah for sure yeah I, i've been really really lucky and um yeah no no complaints on that front so how did you go from uh writing about gear to making your own what's your story there there were a couple of uh steps toward where we are now which is um you know basically full-on manufacturer that also now occasionally writes about gear rather than the reverse so I would always write about my opinions of gear, what I thought the gaps were, where I thought things could be improved or changed or where manufacturers should head, um, trends I saw, all that kind of stuff. I was thoroughly obsessed with the original Trek Speed concept launched in 2009. I was there at the launch of the Trek Speed concept in uh, Los Angeles during the Tour of California time trial. That's where they uh, launched it. That was a really cool day, seeing the the first production bikes firsthand. Um, I got one to review and ride and so forth, and was really obsessed with, you know, everything about how the bike fit together and what it meant for triathlon's future and so forth. Um, but I really didn't like some aspects of the Aerobar's hardware. And so I set about tinkering, designing uh, like a one-off piece that I would make for myself, for my own bike to make it better. Right. And uh, went through a bunch of different iterations of different types of parts, made some 3D prints to see how things would fit and line up and so forth. Um, funny story, I actually just found the first such 3D print uh, that I have. So I, it was sitting in a drawer somewhere, but it's the the very first thing TriRig ever manufactured was this 3D print of a concept. And you got to put it up on a wall or in like a, you know, a, a, a glass box somewhere to display it. Yeah, yeah. I have I have a shelf with little knickknacks and things like that. Uh, I, I go around the corner and take a look at what's on it. But yeah, all, all kinds of weird stuff like that. There's like a there's like a baby Groot statue on that shelf somewhere. Like, <laughs> uh, I, have a, I have a really cool replica of the uh, Infinity Gauntlet from uh, Avengers. 
sitting on you that weren't, You weren't joking about the Marvel movie connection here. No, yeah, we, yeah, we were talking about Marvel before we hit record, and yeah, they were like, you can, uh, you know, bring in other things that aren't part of the show notes and whatnot. And I was like, you mean how I love long walks on the beach and, and Marvel <laughs> movies? And they're like, if you can make it organic, go for it. Yeah. Um, but I've, I, I, I totally echo your your frustration with the front end and the of the speed concept, and uh, I've, I think I've fitted two or three of them, and they're a pain in the ass. Like they're even the newer models, they're not that much better as far yeah. as like bolt occlusion and and you know and adjustability, ease of adjustability. They're they're not that kind of bike. Yeah, yeah. So I um I had finished the design of this clamp that was going to replace a bunch of hardware on the speed concept, and. I uh, shopped it around to a few places to get quotes on how much it would cost to produce a couple of these. And being naive to that kind of thing, to manufacturing, I was just amazed at how insanely expensive it is to produce small quantities of CNC machined metal parts. Um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars for like single parts. Um, so I was going to make a couple for my bikes. I really wanted it, but I, um, you know, contacted a couple of people that I just knew personally and asked if they would be interested. And then they said yes. So I figured, all right, I'll make a batch of like 10 of these things and then just post on the site that I have them and see if anybody else wants them. So I did that and they went really quickly. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll make a few more. And so I made a few more and those sold. So I was like, huh, maybe that'll be like a side thing for this website. You know, I'll have my reviews and so forth, and maybe eventually I'll sell ad space. And then, you know, I'll have little things like these clamps or whatever. So that was the first part. Um, and then, you know, about six months later or so, I was reviewing another bike. I think it was the um, the Blue Triad SL. And that was really cool, but the front of the bike, if you look at the bike front on, it looked really cool. It was very thin, very arrow, very slick, uh, but it had a standard side pull front brake on it. And after writing the speed concept, I was like, no, 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 it has to look really cool and slick and everything <laughs> and no cables hanging out, no hardware in the wind. Um, and so I had like, I, I borrowed or bought some older center pull brakes, like the Hooker Delta and put that on the front for the review to make it look really cool. Although I didn't ever um, use that brake because it doesn't work with modern rims. It's not why it doesn't open wide enough. doesn't use modern pads. It has a lot of problems. Um, mm -hmm. So I never used it that way, but I put it in there for photographs. But I was like, what if there was a modern version of something like that? And so I had a, an idea. I kind of modeled it up in SolidWorks and made an article out of it. And I was like, hey, I want to make this thing. It's going to be a brick. And it has this weird bulbous shape because of how I had designed the original design. And I was like, and I'll call it Omega because it kind of looks like the Greek letter Omega uh -huh. viewed from the front. And people were like really excited about it. And so as I went through the process of designing this thing and making it, I posted at every step along the way um, just to show people what I was doing. Uh, and so over the course of like six months or something, I developed this thing, prototyped it, tested it, and finally, uh, manufactured it. And I knew, um, exactly how many of these things I would have to sell to break even. Like it was a much higher number than these little clamps, right? Right. Cause we're talking about a lot of machined parts, a lot of molded parts, tooling, prototyping, testing, uh, all that kind of stuff. Sure. And then also you're making a kind of a, a safety device, right? So, you know, it's what did you have to, um, you know, what sort of steps did you take to make sure that this thing would actually do the thing that it was supposed to do? Because obviously it was not a, you know, it's not it's not a bottle cage, right? That if it fails, you lose a bottle. If this thing fails, you potentially hurt somebody. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that goes goes on with that. There are uh, safety standards that exist that you um want to use to uh, test there's there's a long story that that question is a has a pretty long answer that's uh <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> fair enough um yes you you do that kind of testing and you make sure the thing's going to work and it's going to adhere to standards um and if you want to sell in europe or if you want to sell in the united states or if you want to sell uh as an oem with another uh so if a if you want to manufacture it to be able to use your brake 
on their bikes, mm-hmm. uh, like we do with Orbea. So Orbea specs our brakes on their bikes and some other places do too. Yeah. Um, you have to conform to these standards and get a certification that your product conforms to the standards and is safe to ride. Got it. So yeah, we, we do all that. And uh, yeah, finally launched this thing. I think it was hmm, somewhere around April 2012, somewhere in there. And I was just hoping at least to break even because the number of zeros in the in the dollar figure to produce <laughs> the first break is pretty big, you know, and I've never made anything before. Um, but I have a lot of people really excited and have been watching and following along. And I'm hoping that, you know, we'll break even with some, you know, reasonable time frame. And I open up, you know, I have a timer going. I'm showing, you know, I'm really trying to hype. This thing's coming out on this day and this is the only thing like it on the market and whatnot. And we break even within the first day. So I was like, okay, all right, we've got something. So basically from that day forward, um, that's been my full-time job is designing and manufacturing equipment because um, it was obvious that I had some things to offer, some ideas that other people and other companies in this industry aren't doing um, that that I can offer and people are excited about. So that was kind of a the beginning of that story. So this is, um, yeah, it's quite interesting because there's some parallels to the the journey that I've had, but it was almost like you, you entered the entrepreneurship, uh, side of things backwards where you, uh, you made some samples for friends and then that kind of worked well. And from what you were saying, it never really sounded like you were trying to make this into a business. It was just kind of a, a neat design that you wanted to break even on as opposed to, I want to earn my living doing this. I want to become a millionaire which is what a lot of people see with startups, um, or at least a lot of people attempt with startups. But uh, no, very, very interesting to hear how that happened. Um, so the um, the real question I have, and if you don't mind talking about this a little bit, you mentioned some of the tooling costs that you were looking at to get something like that made. So I've gone through tooling before, but I'm sure some people who are listening have, have no idea how much it costs to get plastics or castings made. So do you mind going over some of the details on that? Yeah, I mean, it changes, it varies widely uh, depending on what you're talking about because, you know, if you're talking about an injection, injection molded plastic mold, that's one type of thing with one type of construction methodology, testing, uh, refinement, and so forth. Uh, a mold for a carbon fiber product is very different. It has different loads that it needs to be able to withstand, um, much different from like an inge- injection molded plastic, if you're talking about a steel casting and so forth. So, I mean, those things all vary widely and uh, it, it can change a lot depending on where you're having this stuff done. Um, a lot of folks go overseas. Um, uh, we, we do some of our work in China and Taiwan, less because of cost or um, you know, the, the, the ultimate price of labor and so forth and more because of core competency. So there's a couple factories we've been working with for a long time that are really just really, really excellent at what they do. Um, so it, you know, it, it's tough to be able to tell someone, oh, it's this many dollars to make a mold because it so depends on what you're making and how complex it is and what material you're making it out of and so forth. But I mean, a simple mold for a small part can be anywhere from a few thousand to tens of thousands of dollars for a single part. Um, And then, you know, scaling up from there, depending on how large and complex and what materials we're talking about. And that's a lot of breaks to make up that cost. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's not one mold. It's there's several things and there's several things that we have machined. And then there's there's work afterwards and there's packaging and then there's shipping things over here. And then there's shipping things out to the consumer and there's customs fees and so forth. And those things are always changing over time. So especially recently for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it is surprising because a lot of people look at a product and say, well, how could, you know, this would be $5 in materials and they're charging a hundred dollars for it. How could this possibly be? And the reality is you've got all these hidden costs that you're trying to amortize, like the tooling and the labor and the the shipping and the customs and all this other stuff that's not really readily apparent to the end user. So it adds up incredibly quickly. Well, yeah. And I mean, the you're saying the material cost is one thing, but I mean, if you bought a chunk of aluminum for like $10, 
uh, it's not in the shape that you need it for your bicycle part. It, and it doesn't magically get that way. It gets that way with, you know, hours of machine time if you're going to carve it out CNC or however you're making it or milling and so forth. Um, so, you know, the cost of that machine, the cost of the tools that you're using to make it, the bits that will get used up while you're making it <clears throat> and so forth. And that none of that even uh, calculates in like my time to do it. You know, if I'm donating my time or doing it for free or just hoping it's going to work. Now that I've been on this side for so long, I don't think of those as sort of hidden costs. I think of those as sort of the normal costs to make a thing. So I think it's safe to say that the the Omega brakes had exceeded your expectations there. So that left you in a position where you've got a very popular product. And then I guess what was the next thing in your mind? Like, what did you say at that point? Like, I want to continue seeing this out or I want to start a new product or um, what was psychologically, what was the next step for you? Yeah, I think pretty quickly... Um, I started developing the first version of our stem, the first Sigma stem. I think that was within six months there or so. Um, so yeah, the I mean, the first several months are just, okay, how do I deal with this now? Because I'm getting orders on a daily basis. So how do I make sure those are filled in a timely manner, that I have the inventory to fill them, that I can kind of have a good supply chain? Um, and those are, uh, ironically, problems that we still face to this day because we can't always anticipate how big a rush we're going to have for certain products. And so if we suddenly run out faster than we were anticipating and we need to order a new batch, you know, there's a lead time on that. Um, so those are still logistical problems we wrestle with today. But, you know, the first couple months were dealing with the smallest version of those problems for a single product, a single SKU, um, and just, you know, me working by myself in my basement. Um so, but then looking forward to next products, finally, yeah, we developed the Sigma stem. Um, I was always kind of, I've always kind of been really interested in the front end of the bike, um, how the bars work, how the brakes work. Uh, I'm, I'm really, really, really interested in aero bars. That's without a doubt my favorite part of the bike. So after the stem, I was like, yeah, no. It's the most interesting part on a triathlon bike, for sure, hands down. There's so much going on there, and you can. It's probably the place where you can you can do the most, you know, tinkering. I, it makes perfect sense to me. Is hands down a bad pun on that? Or, 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 or. That's nice. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> puns are puns are not only allowed; they're encouraged on this podcast, at least by well, me. Well, uh, when I came out with the newest version of our bar, the Alpha One, which I I think is the most important product I've ever made or designed, and by far uh the best handlebar out there i mean honestly without you know sounding like i'm bragging too much or just log rolling um i i think it really changes the athlete's relationship to the bike and when dan emfield wrote his review for the bar he said tririg has raised the bar and they've lowered the bar and they've moved it sideways and forward and back and like <laughs> he had three or four puns in a row it is an excellent bar and as like you know as a as a fitter like that bar makes me very happy um and and there have been people who followed suit right who have done similar things either concurrently or after you released the i'm not totally aware of the timelines but i know the you know the, the the p5x bar does similar things um doesn't have the same range of adjust adjustability but the monopost um stack adjustment is uh is, is a really terrific feature both for a fitter and also for like the end user because you know depending on the you know the course the duration that kind of stuff you can modify your fit quite easily which is awesome yeah, so Cervelo has a couple of bikes that have uh, a continuously adjustable stack, but the, any of those bikes that have that kind of bar, the bar only works on that bike, comes with the bike, that bike can use no other bar. It's a complete yep. system that doesn't go anywhere else. Um, Alpha One is the only bar that can be taken from bike to bike that has this kind of feature, and it's, I think it's significantly different from the Cervelo offering in a few significant ways. One the stack actually just goes vertically. If you want to add five millimeters of stack, you can add oh, cool. five millimeters of stack. The Cervelo bar telescopes at the head tube angle. So as you go up, you're also going back. As you're going down, you're also right. going forward. So they've coupled those, huh? I mean, it, it's. I think for them, they wanted to do that to ensure there was no interference problems. And we discovered that we could design the bar that really didn't have in, significant interference problems, like the monopost hitting anything in front. 
Um, right. Yeah, that would be my question. Like, if you had a, a longer, a, you know, a longer uh, head tube. Yeah. So if if you run into, so I mean, like, folks on the Felt IA10, so it has a very very large head tube projection. Sometimes they need to trim the monopost. So if they have a very low position and the monopost comes down real low, they need to trim it. But the post is designed to be trimmed, and we offer replacement posts. Uh, pretty close to our cost, just so that folks aren't afraid to do that. So if you need to trim it, trim it. If you need to get a replacement, it's available. We got plenty of them. Um, but in almost all scenarios, it's not a big deal. We don't actually sell a lot of those posts because folks tend not to need to replace anything or cut too significantly. But uh, yeah, the Alpha One is really the only product of its kind on the market today uh, that does what it does. So let's talk about about front ends about about Aerobar specifically. Like clearly, you have a very you know. I think I understand your design ethos, but I'd love for you to talk about it. Like, what's important to you in an Aerobar? Because you clearly you you know you put a lot of attention to it. Um, what are you thinking about when you're when you're putting one together when you're designing one? I mean, that's that's changed significantly over the years as well. I mean, uh, what. I've thought about the way I think about aero bars is informed by what other people are learning and thinking and doing in the sport. Um, hmm. You know, how so? Well, like five, six years ago, there wasn't much thought to arm tilt. Yes. And the, the sort of the best thoughts were that um, it's a very rare athlete who benefits from arm tilt, and most athletes should have fairly flat arms. Um, and that's going to be the best aerodynamically and for comfort and um, and, and functionally in, in other ways. Um, and over the last couple of years, that thinking has basically reversed, that most athletes are going to benefit both aerodynamically and comfort-wise from having some amount of tilt and, you know, biomechanically. And, and so originally Alpha X was designed without any tilt. And as time went on and, you know my thoughts on that kind of shift and the industry changes and people learn new things and I learn new things. I'm like, okay, well, let's see if we can make this sucker tilt. And so I design new hardware and then eventually roll that into the bar. So for a while we sell that as a kit. Hey, if you uh, are one of these funky guys who likes to tilt your bars, here's a kit you can add to your alpha X. And then eventually it's no, you know, most people uh, should at least have the option to tinker with that. So we'll put the as standard hardware with the bar and so we started selling that as standard hardware with the bar my own anecdote for this bar is that the uh the reason i actually picked one up and i was telling nick um before we started recording that uh i just jumped off the trainer riding on uh, on his alpha x bar on my uh shift tt and the reason i picked it up is because the shift tt has no tilt so i've been a huge fan of tilt for uh probably for five or six years um, you know, experimenting with it on people I'm fitting, mostly from, I wasn't aware of the aerodynamic benefits, but uh, mostly from the the comfort benefit, like the shoulder comfort is, for some people, really, there's a, a marked difference in uh, in shoulder comfort and ability to get nice and low and, and keep the head low um, uh, in, a, in a TT position or triathlon position. So anyway, my shift TT didn't have any tilt, and that was kind of a deal breaker for me. I picked it up for a song uh, secondhand, um, but, uh, I knew that I needed to do something to, to get tilt. So the, you know, it was, it was time to pull the trigger for, right on. Uh, on an, on a, on a tri-rig bar. And I'm, you know, super happy with it. Yeah. There's not a lot of bars that'll fit on that bike. That's right. That was the other thing. Yeah. That like traditional stems, um, weren't going to fit because of the, uh, the, the tidy clearance too. exactly behind yeah. the steer. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm quite pleased. And the, uh, the guy that, uh, the mechanic that installed it for me said it was, um, one of the easiest front ends he's ever put on, and he 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 built the shiv originally and struggled with their OEM bar, uh, with the with the brake cable routing, but not not so with this bar. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I mean going back to the way you formed your question originally, which is what do I think about bars when designing? I generally try and pare down things, so I I want to have the least amount of hardware possible to achieve all of the goals I want to achieve. So I try to eliminate as much as possible to make the sucker as minimalist, as small as possible, the least amount of hardware, the fewest bolts, um, while still achieving all of the design goals for the thing. Um, and like you, you mentioned the phrase bolt occlusion a little while ago, like there are phrases like that, like 
I don't think I'd heard the term bolt occlusion anywhere, but I started using that term and talking about it when I designed the first version of our bar. Because I'll give so you three bars. guesses why I use that term now. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's in our marketing language? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so when I was designing the first version of our bar, Alpha Classic, uh, now discontinued, but there were so many bars out there where to access one piece of adjustment, you had to first take off one or more parts to get to the bolt that you're after. And so I was like, what? what is this? There's something in front of blocking the thing that I want. Like the bolt I want is behind. It's hidden. So it's like I was trying to think of a, an easy, catchy way to describe that. So talk about bolt occlusion. Like so anything I manufacture and design, I want to make sure that everything is accessible at all times. I'm not going to cover up one set of adjustment bolts with another part. Like it's, it's just infuriating. Um, it seemed like a lot of the parts that were being designed were being designed by people that weren't using them. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, and that's changed over time. I think there's been a lot of really cool things to come out, but, um, you know, at the time, every time I design a part, I'm trying to do something that offers something new to the industry something new to athletes that hasn't been done before. It's not like, oh, this one's pink. It's like, no, this one does something that nothing else out there can do. So I like the analogy you use there or the the mention of um, working on a bike and understanding the need for having something easier to access. And I think that's something that so many engineers out there are lacking. And I noticed a lot of my classmates when I was going to school had never done anything with their hands. So we've got this... Um, you know, this group of people who are out there designing things who have never taken it apart themselves, who have never put it together themselves. And it may be designed that way for ease of manufacturing initially, but serviceability is terrible for so many things. And I've gotten that, um, I've experienced that through the years working on cars, but um, yeah, seeing bikes go through the same evolution. Like it's, it's really, it's such a great lesson. It seems so simple, but it's something that's an oversight for so many people out there. Yeah, I mean, it's really easy in the computer to move a part around, but when you find out how that part really moves in the real world, that, that can change things significantly. So, yeah, yeah, learning how that stuff happens in real life is super important. So, I mean, that's why I like 3D printed parts or prototypes or testing is just so critically important. So you can actually just get your hands on the thing and feel it in the real world, which is um, significantly different from how the thing works in the computer. I mean, we get a lot of super, super great information from 3D modeling, but uh, there's another step between 3D modeling and the real world. So speaking of prototypes, something like the bars, how many iterations would you go through before you were happy with it? So it's, it's a bit of an amorphous process, right? So before we commit to tooling, we have to be really sure that we like what we have. So there's not, um, we're not going to have a version of the bar that's so rideable uh, before we commit to the first version of the tooling. But what I did for Alpha 1, which was such a significantly different product from anything before it, I had a stem machined that does everything that the current Alpha 1 Pursuit Bar does. It has the um, the receptacle for the monopost, it pinches to an actual steer tube, um, everything the way the Alpha 1 currently works, but it was machined out of a solid block of aluminum because that was the only way to really do it in a prototype form that would work. So, And I, I have some of this. I think um, on the Alpha 1 FAQ, there, there used to be some images. Oh, I must have taken them off. Well, there's a little video there of an informal slip test using that part. But so imagine a stem with no base bar, right? So it's just a little funky little snake looking thing. Um, but it has the receptacle for the monopost. So we machine everything out in aluminum. And I'm able to test the function of the bar in that way. So that one was testing for function. Then... You know, other things we're testing for, you know, how does this monopost work? How does the wedge clamp work? How do we refine that? So we go through a few versions of that in physical form um, and then finally t commit to tooling. I don't, I don't feel like I answered the question very well. Um, <laughs> the, the process is just so different from, from part to part. 
I think, yeah, I mean, you know, the process, I, I can imagine that the process would be different from uh, from part to part and that it's, uh, you know, it's certainly enhanced with technologies like 3D printing. But what about, so <clears throat> Andrew and I, if you've, I don't know if you've heard any of our episodes, but Andrew and I are big aerodynamics nerds. Um, we're also both mechanical engineers and, and Andrew's got the uh, the virtual wind tunnel product that uh, he's been, uh, he's had out in the marketplace for for years. Um, so how do you approach the aerodynamics of your products? Because of course we all know that, uh, aero is everything. Yeah. And that's also changed over time. So like with the first version, our break, we, um, we made the thing and then we sent that in for testing afterwards. Basically like, we're pretty sure this is going to make things faster. Let's find out how we did. Um, but now things are a lot different. So now, you know, we begin um in the computer with computational fluid dynamics so we're able to run you know virtual simulations in the computer and we're generally testing one version of our own part against another version of our own part it is theoretically possible to test your stuff against someone else's stuff but then you would have to model their stuff in the computer um, and we're not going to those links at this time. We kind of have a good sense of how our parts perform in general. And so mm -hmm. when we're testing our stuff against our stuff, we have a good idea of how that works in the real world in general. And so like for Alpha 1, we went through probably a couple hundred versions of the base bar to find the fastest version of everything that worked the best. And it ended up that the fastest airfoil we tested for Alpha 1 was 3 to 1. So it was UCI oh, really? legal. Yeah, we were originally thinking hey, let's make two versions of the base bar, one UCI legal, one not UCI legal that's a little faster. And then I was thinking, well, maybe we'll make a the three-to-one version with a snap-on fairing that makes it deeper, that'll make it even faster. And it turned out the fastest version was just three-to-one. It was actually just a couple grams faster than even the six-to-one or... That's interesting, because the X is six-to-one, right? Yeah, the X is six-to-one, but Alpha One is, is faster than the X, uh, basically across any position or any... Uh, wind angle. That's interesting. Yeah, that's that was going to be my follow up question. Is do you you know obviously tested across yaw angles, but um, what about the interactions between the bar? I mean, the base bar is out front, right, right in the wind, so it's probably not as influenced by the rider or the the rest of the frame. But uh, you know, certainly the extensions would be. Yeah, not the rider, or the frame so much, but then the other parts of the air bar itself and the stem and what's uh, you know how the bar leads into the stem. So. Yeah, there was a lot of work we did there. I mean, the the design goal of Alpha 1 was to introduce its novel mechanical features and just not be slower than Alpha X. <laughs> sure. I didn't want it to be, you know, a compromise to gain these mechanical advantages. Um, but in fact, it's faster across any position or yaw angle from, from my testing. So we do that in the computer. Um, and then depending on the project, we may do wind tunnel runs during development, or we may only do it afterwards uh, for validation. So like Omni, we, I designed the bike. I thought this is a crazy radical thing. It looks fast in the computer, but let me go test it in the real world before I commit to any tooling. So Omni, I made a 3D, full-size 3D print of the bike, which is a pretty significant cost. Yeah, that's, that can't be easy. No, no, that's that's thousands and thousands of dollars for the one print, which is, you know, basically like it'll shatter if you drop it on the floor. <laughs> um, and that happened. So right after testing, as I was packing up, I dropped the fork and the fork shattered. Oh, no. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe with different materials we could do better, but it was it was the right material for the oh, job. Oh, you didn't have to ride the thing, right? No. And it was like it was rigid. It was exactly the right shapes. It, it held shape. It fit together. We could mechanically fit all the pieces together as a real bike would in the tunnel. So the thing was, uh, it was a 3D printed frame, 3D printed fork, 3D printed seat post with a real handlebar, sorry, real handlebar, real wheels, uh, real brakes on it. So we put that in the tunnel against like a best in class bike and found out, oh my gosh, we are significantly faster. So yeah, let's go ahead and keep refining the design and then go to tooling. So that's what we did for Omni. Um, for something like Alpha 1, we didn't do um, a 3D print in the tunnel. We didn't do interdevelopment wind tunnel testing. We did post-development testing for validation purposes because we knew it was faster than Alpha X, which we have tested in the tunnel. So we know we're going to be great in the tunnel. Let's go ahead to tooling and then, and then do testing later so we can have some data.
And for that, I would even argue that the the aerodynamics of the bar themselves are almost secondary compared to facilitating a better position for the rider. So if you can allow someone to become more aerodynamic, then that's going to completely outweigh whether or not the bars are faster themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I didn't want that to be a compromise at all. A design imperative for Alpha 1 was that the physical piece not be aerodynamically slower than Alpha X. So I wanted to be at least as fast um, so that no one would be making a compromise. Like, okay, I can do these cooler fit iterations with Alpha 1, but should I because Alpha X is faster or whatever? But no, we, we developed to the point where Alpha 1 was faster across any position or yaw angle than Alpha X, and it had all of those additional advantages. So it's you know, it's, it's superior in every way, basically. And that's ultimately what you want was the no compromise best solution. Yeah. I mean, when we found that out, it was a, it was a hallelujah moment. It was like, oh my gosh, we don't have to, yeah, we're, we're not going to run into this problem. And it was the fastest version that we made was the three to one. So it was UCI legal. So yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a pretty special, uh, product, I think. Yeah, it's awesome how how these things come together, you know, how you can, you know, there's the growth of uh, the testing and the fit technologies and then the growth of the, adjust, you know, the improvements in the adjustability of the bikes. Because that really, as Andrew pointed out, you know, the rider is obviously the vast majority of the aerodynamic drag and um, being able to continuously tweak that position, you know, in in in, res in response to maybe course changes or, or yeah, the loads on the rider, but also the rider's fitness. Because, you know, back in the day, we would, uh, you know, with, with the most, you know, the keenest riders, we might do two or three bike fits a year where we would have a little tweak in their position. But with this, um, you know, easy to adjust and constantly variable, essentially, um, monopost stack position, um, you could almost have an infinite number of position changes if you're if you're one of those people that, that like to tweak that well i mean every single person from the first timer to the multiple time world champion tweaks position over time yeah totally every single person and the ability to do that uh is what kind of defines how often you're going to do it so if you're that multiple time world champion and you have an entourage and you have mechanics who are able to do that and you can say you know hey jimmy will you add five millimeters of stack and give me five more degrees of tilt i'm going to go out for a ride and four hours later you'll have that bike ready for me right you know that that makes it easy for you um if you're the age grouper who does your own wrenching at home if that change takes four hours you're maybe only going to do it once a year exactly but that's that's really the revelation of Alpha One is that you can do that in a couple of seconds in the middle of a ride if you want with one wrench. You know, you can change the stack with one bolt. You can change your tilt with two bolts. They're always accessible and it's one wrench to do it. So that significantly changes your ability to do that. So now everybody can have that, you know, that mechanic at home who's going to change your bike when you're ready for it but you can do it in the middle of a ride. So it's it's just a massive change to the athlete's relationship to that bike. And then if you're worried about it and you say, oh no, I want to go back to my original position. Well, everything's laid out with nice little hash marks and numbers. So you can say, oh yeah, I was at five and I was at 10 degrees. So I'll just go back there. Perfect. Boom. Yeah, that's awesome. Like So that after, you know, after Christmas dinner, if you need... 10 more millimeters of stack, you can get there. And then you can, uh, <laughs> a week later, right. you can go back down. Are you speaking from experience here? A hundred percent. I was, uh, I, I've been a little bit sick too. And then I, I jumped on the bike for the first time in probably four or five days. I was like, Oh, there's a lot more, there's a lot more knee to gut contact than there, than there was, yeah, yeah. than there was a week ago. It's the triathlon equivalent of the, uh, extra hole in the belt. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent analogy. Yeah. yeah. What's the, uh, what's the tilt range on the, on the alpha one? Uh, minus five to plus 17 and a half. Oh, nice. And that's for the, you know, initial angle that can change depending on what kind of extension you're using and sure. what your ultimate arm angle will be. Sure. Yeah. You can get something really tall in the front. And I guess you, you mentioned the UCI legality of it. Um, so that ease of adjustment, if you are going through scrutineering and you find out, oh, I'm slightly too high on the extensions, um, that would quickly allow you to get back within the legal range. 
Right. Yeah. So you're supposed to be ten, no more than 10 centimeters from the pad to the tip of the extensions in terms of rise. So yeah, you could just, yeah, bring your wrench with you, make sure you're at 10 centimeters and, and off you go. <laughs> Rather than having to scrap because you didn't bring all your bolts and all your spacers and whatnot. <laughs> and that's really my biggest frustration with a lot of the super bikes is just the lack of adjustability. Um, so you're spending all this money on a fantastic bike, but then it forces you to conform yourself to its position rather than it conforming itself to your position. Yeah. And even the ones that are getting it now that figured it out, that range of adjustment is important. It's still so hard to iterate your fit. Like, like we were just talking about, like if you want five more millimeters, that's going to take you four hours at home because you have to recable everything. You got to, you know, take everything apart, go find your box of bolts, go find your box of spacers, get all your wrenches out and, you know, cut your cables, redo the housing, like all that stuff. Um, yeah, the classic example of that would be the the original P5. We, uh, I, w I just, I would refuse sure. fits because I didn't have a full shop. I was just doing this out of my like cycling studio. And basically if somebody came to me with a P5, I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Chances are there's <laughs> nothing I can do for you. <laughs> I can tell, you know, yeah. with uh, with the stack virtual wind tunnel, we could, you know, we could scan you and tell you how aerodynamic you are. But if you wanted to make changes, then you're, you know, I can give you some recommendations and then send you to a shop for <laughs> essentially a front yeah, end exactly. rebuilt, right? Because you have to bleed the hydraulics and, and recable everything. Yeah, it was a nightmare. Right. Yeah. If you wanted to add five millimeters on the P5, you're recabling all four. Yeah. You're bleeding the hydraulics. You have to take the bars apart. Um, you have to decide which one of those front things you're using, the high V, the low V or the undermount. Yeah. And then, yeah, how many? Yeah. It's a nightmare. That was a complete recable. Um, same thing for anything that used the Shimano Pro uh, missile TT aero bar and stem system. Um, that's a full recable anytime you want to change anything on that. Oh, good times. Yeah, it, they really yeah. were designed with, you know, with pros in mind who had the, you know, who had the ability, had more than one bike and had the sure. had the mechanics on, on basically on call for them. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think when we, so we, we built two bikes for Andy Potts a few years ago when he was on Kestrel and he used that front end system and DI2. And I think we spent close to 30 hours building uh, two bikes for him, no, that's which is just an extraordinary amount of time. Like just cabling one bar, I think would take four hours. Um, we, we also did a couple of cool little novel things. Like we, uh, spliced all the DI2 wires together so that we had only one wire coming out. Nice. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, that was a bit of a nightmare build for sure. It's mind boggling to imagine spending four hours on something like that. I've never had to, to deal with hydraulic brakes, but, uh, yeah, four hours just to adjust the stack. I, <laughs> No, no, that was, yeah, that was just a cable, cable the bars in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or adjusting. Yeah, I suppose that would also be for adjusting stack for sure. It's a cool looking bar for sure from the front. It's very minimal. Um, weirdly, a number of OEM bars still use that system. So there's a weird, like, the extensions themselves are part of the structural stack um, mechanics. Yeah, so there's like a nut inside the extension there's two actually. One is for the bolts going down that connect the bar to the extensions. And then one is for the arm cups on top, which connect the arm cups to the extensions. It makes everything very minimal. There's very little that the wind sees, but uh, it's a, an extremely frustrating bar to build for sure. And very, very difficult to adjust. So Nick, you've been obviously paying attention to the industry for a long time and part of it for slightly less long. What... Uh, what do you see happening? And I'll, I'll ask both for uh, aftermarket parts and then for the for bike design itself. Um, on the bike design, there's some, you know, some convergence in, in terms of, you know, geometry of bikes. Um, there used to be a lot more variation. If you even look at the, the classic P2, P3 bikes were very different geometries. And now everyone's kind of, you know, shifting towards the, the middle, that fat end of the bell curve. Um, but uh, fit aside, what do you see happening with, uh, with bike design in the next little while? So, you know, I agree that, that, um, Fit philosophy is definitely converging, and I think in a good place, pretty much. Um, you know, the idea of where bike design is going is an interesting question because there's things that are getting a lot more integrated or things that are getting a lot less integrated. And I think both of those categories are thriving. Um, so bikes that are completely sewn up from end to end, 
um, that those exist and those are still at the top end of most people's ranges. So, you know, your P5X, your uh, speed concept, your um, Argon 119, those kinds of things where you buy the thing and tip to tail, the bike manufacturer has told you what you're going to have on your bike. And then there's still uh, the the other end that is also thriving where the bike manufacturer has a few things that they're going to give to you, but you can decide what you're using elsewhere. And so even the the newest like Cervelo P series uh, does this. So it's the the classic, you know, expression of the P2 and the P3, uh, but basically in disc brake form. So, right. you know, you can still choose your own bars, you can choose your own um, stem, so forth. There are some limitations in terms of what wheels you can get and, uh, you know, you've got to have disc brakes and so forth. But um, the, I think both of those categories are still thriving. And it's it's unclear if either of them is going away. Um, I, I don't think so. I don't see either going away because there's certain things you can do with a completely integrated system that's just really cool. But, um, you know, when we built the Omni, we proved you don't have to give up anything if you maintain standard interfaces everywhere. So like the Omni, you can use any bar you want. You can use any brake you want. Um, you don't have to use our brakes or our bars or our anything. Um, it's a lot cooler if you do. You know, the Omni <laughs> is really cool sewn up front to back with tri parts. And I think that's the best choice. But like, let's say you're flying to a race and TSA breaks something on the bike. You can replace almost anything on Omni with a standard part off the rack at your local bike shop and race. Um, the, the completely integrated bikes, you can't do that, right? So if, if TSA broke your high V mount on your P5, if you can't find one where you just landed, you're in trouble. You know, your, your race is over or you're going to be riding a Huffy or something. <laughs> yeah. Borrow bike. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that but, makes a lot of sense. What about what about frame design itself? Like so, you know, obviously the 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 double triangle bikes are still the majority, but you're seeing design, innovative designs like obviously like yours or like uh Ventums or Demand who are, you know, who are eschewing that for a slightly different shape. For sure. No, and I think it's it's a really really cool time because even the biggest manufacturers now are saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to try and just scrap the rule book and see what we can do. And that's really, really interesting. Um, and what I think is super interesting is that Cervelo, so they have both of their tracks now, you know, their X track, which is the funky, um, non-conforming bike and their standard track, which is conforming double triangle. And they end up with very, very similarly aerodynamically performing bikes. Um, you know, with heavy or light, I think there's a delta of like 20 grams of drag for the thing. So it's it's a pretty small delta. I could be wrong about that specific number, but I think you're. I think they were quite close. I, I don't remember the numbers, but I remember like the the new P5 disc, the double triangle, like the TT legal, the UCI legal bike, it's, and it's the P5X. Yeah. It's something like it's slightly faster if you don't have storage on it, and then it's yes. slightly slower if you have storage on it. And I think yep. the gap from top to bottom is like 20 grams or something like that. It's very little. So their version, they, they were not able to find significant gains with the beam philosophy. You know, my thinking is that the the monofoil design is is where we're finding better gains. Rather than eliminating the seat post, we're eliminating the down tube for, for want of a better expression of how you describe that kind of thing, which I, yes. which I don't think is quite the way to describe it, but that's the way Ventum has liked to describe it. And that's maybe the easiest way for consumers to think of it. But um, so I, I think that's where we've been able to find some gains is in that kind of design, but, but it's tough because you kind of got to pick your philosophy when you go in to design the bike. Um, you know, there's, there's no, you know, a priori knowledge of what is definitely going to be the fastest design philosophy. You have to go through all of this and go from A to Z, and then you're able to test. You have to put in a significant amount of work before you can test your first design. And so if you're going for beam bike, you know, they'll, they'll test their design and they'll find out where, you know, they're, they're finding wind slowdown and, and little vortices and eddies in the CFD and, and work on it from there. But, uh, you don't know beforehand before you start what's what's the best bike design of all time 
um, so that but that's really cool to see. So lots of people with lots of brain power are working on lots of different types of designs, and so ultimately the consumer wins. But it's it's really neat to see all these different designs. You know, I I really like where we are with Omni, but I also am really glad to see other people in the industry trying out different things. You know, if for nothing else than to say, oh, okay, that one that one doesn't really work for some reason or another. Um, but it's it's super cool for sure. Hmm. So, what made you wanted to build a build a tri rig bike? Because you know, clearly, you were doing well with the the aftermarket components, and by the sounds of you know, by your description of the the work in design and prototyping and building a front end, uh, I can imagine that a whole frame would be that much more complex. Yeah, and for a long time, I never thought I would, um, because like I said before, I only ever want to make something when I think we have something significant to offer something new that hasn't been done or that isn't available and that offers a significant benefit and so when i first went in to design it i was like okay this thing this kind of design language looks really cool there's no other bike that's doing this kind of thing um i think ventum at the time existed but their take on the monofoil wasn't the take that i thought was um, kind of the the coolest one to pursue. And there are a number of examples of monofoil designs prior to Ventum. Um, you know, there was the the famous Lotus examples. There's um, th- there are a, a large number of those types of things. Um, but I wanted to try our best expression of that. And so it was at first, you know, a design idea. It wasn't. We're definitely making a bike. It was, let me design this thing, see how it feels, what it looks like, what it potentially could have to offer. And then, you know, we took that to the, t- fortunately at the time, Tririg is doing well enough that we could make those expenditures, you know, build that expensive 3D prototype, take it to the wind tunnel and test it without having to say, we have to make this thing and recover these costs. It was, let's see if we have something significant to offer. Um and it turned out that we did. So we went forward with the design. So at first it was an experiment that then became a, okay, we have something really cool to offer. Cool. And then I'm going to ask you a question that's, you know, that's been on my mind and maybe in some of the listeners' minds. Um, where are you at on disc brakes? Obviously the, the Omega brake is a, is a rim brake and the, the Omni is a rim brake bike. Uh, it does seem like if not the rest of the industry, the majority of the industry is going disc. Where are you guys on this? So it feels to me that that's a really artificial push um, towards disc hmm. brakes. Um, I don't see that as an optimal solution for tri bikes. Um, you're giving up somewhere between five and eight watts that you can't really recover aerodynamically. Um, and forget about trying to make the caliper itself more aerodynamic or shielding it or whatever. You have to build up your hub more significantly. You have to add spokes. You have to add robustness for the torque that's happening right there at the hub. Mm-hmm. You have to add material to mount the disc brake itself and so forth. So it's not the ideal solution. Um, and it's, in my experience, not really necessary. Like the Omega X can lock up a, a wheel uh, pretty quickly in the dry or in the wet. So that's to say it has substantial braking power more than you need. Once you lock up the wheel, you can't brake any harder than that. Um, and it has significant modulation. So from zero braking to locking up the wheel, you're able to uh, really finely control that with the brake. So I haven't found uh, a need for that. I think where people end up saying, oh, disc brakes are so cool, is when they're comparing them to really misoptimized systems of carbon braking surfaces with poor treatments, with probably suboptimal pads with suboptimal braking levers and then they're going to a system that's very well designed and very well coordinated with like a hydraulic uh disc brake with a proper alloy braking surface with good pads for that braking surface and a good lever so they go from a system with like three problems to a system with like zero problems and they're like oh my gosh the zero problem system works really well let's go for that one (laughs) um yeah but in, in practice, I don't see that offering a, a palpable benefit. I talked with the flow guys a lot about this stuff, and they know a lot more about wheels than I do. But 
um, I still came away with with the feeling that the the, the rim break is optimal for try, but um, you know, there's there's powers a lot larger than I am at work trying to push disc brakes onto every bike on the planet. So uh, I may be pushed out anyway, but uh, I, I'm I'm still going to be happy to ride rim brake bikes on on tri bikes for the foreseeable future. I think you make a good case. I mean, um, certainly there is an aerodynamic penalty which has not been addressed, as you say. Um, and you know, there's the need for braking in triathlon is certainly lower than the need for braking in group, any, any kind of group riding, road riding. Um, I mean, I, I I don't I take issue with that. Like, I don't say we don't need to brake as much. I say we can brake as well as the disc brake in our situations. Like, even on a carbon surface, though, a carbon like even like a top end carbon wheel. First, if you want to have an optimal apples to apples comparison, then either put an alloy brake track on your wheels, which will still make them significantly lighter than your disc brake wheel, by the way. Um, so if you're worried about weight, don't. Um, no, I agree with that. And then get a proper alloy braking pad. So use alloy rims and cool stop pads and you'll get performance equal to a disc brake bike. Um Unless you're on a mountain with mud going everywhere, but we don't really do that with tri bikes, so mm-hmm. that's why I don't think it's it's necessary. We don't need to, you know, clear debris off of the rim, you know, the way that those problems exist on mountain bikes. That's why they're so great there because you're not getting that debris on on the disc rotor when you're like on a mountain, flinging mud everywhere. Um, so yeah, it's not that triathletes need to break less. We we also need to break. We also need to be safe, but we can do it just fine. So like if you're saying, oh, even on a carbon rim, it's like, well, if you're going to do that, then use a carbon disc brake rotor, which will also suck. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you really want to use a carbon rim because you think it's sexy or you like the lower weight or whatever, then yeah, you're going to need a couple innovations to make up for that. Zip does a really, really good job. They have a nice treated surface with... Um, not only a material treatment, but a surface treatment with their, uh, I think they call it showstopper. It's like these little um, eyelash shaped etchings that go all the way around. Um, yep. And then they yeah, have, and their new ones on their new ones. Yeah, they have a really nice optimized pad and they get really, really good performance in the dry and the wet. Um, I'm not sure if it's as good as traditional alloy with a good alloy pad, but it's very, very good in my experience. So you could do that, mm-hmm. but if you want to do apples to apples, you know, make the surfaces similar. Don't say, oh, yeah, let's use a carbon rim and then an alloy disc brake rotor. That's not a really fair comparison. It's not, but you could have an alloy rim with a disc. I mean, you could, you could have a carbon rim with, you know, a steel rotor or an alloy rotor. And then and that, that system would work. I agree that it's heavier. It's got more spokes because of the torque and it's got a heavier hub. Um, but at the, you know, at the at the rim itself where weight matters a little bit more, it's going to have probably less weight because it doesn't have an alloy brake track. Weight does not matter more at the rim. That's, uh, that's for steady state. I agree because unless you're, you know, if you're not accelerating and decelerating the rim. No, I mean, that's been disproven for pretty much any condition that, that bicycles are in, like whether you're really? a criterium, you're going up a mountain, you're going down a mountain, like weight at the rim versus weight in your pocket versus weight in your crank set doesn't, doesn't make any difference for the physics involved i you know maybe someone out there is going to shout at me but um i will i'll stand behind that statement i'm curious now i gotta i gotta look that up because like i've i've always taken that as a matter of course but i've never really thought too too hard about it so i'm not going to common myth yeah okay so nick nick's putting it on the line saying that the uh, the rotational weight of the wheel is a common myth yeah it does not matter at all I mean, okay. <laughs> relative to any other, I mean, it doesn't matter any more than weight anywhere else on your system. Sure. Yeah. And I would say if you dig into that enough, like mathematically, you can show that it might have a small impact, but um, in, in a practical sense, I don't think it really hurts you at all. Aerodynamics are still going to dwarf any, any weight contributions for, for something like that. Interesting. I gotta, I'm going to, I'm going to look into this because it is, it is, as you say, it's a common, well, it's common, common uh, understanding whether or not it's, you know. Yeah, no, and I'm I'm sure I've I've incorrectly written that myself in articles in the past. But we, you know, we learn, we look at the evidence, we see what other people have to say, and we uh, and we grow from that. So I used yeah. to I used to be in the same the same train. I was very uh, 
you know, and I'm, I'm like anyone else. I still like lightweight parts. I still do lightweight builds for fun. Like I recently built a nine pound road bike for the site. That was a cool feature. People yes. come over here and they're like, hey, can I hold that bike? And they hold it and they're like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is so cool. And then you ride yeah. it and you're like, oh, this feels so cool. And like, but in reality, it's no different. Like you're not going to go any faster. Um, like the physics will decide how fast you go, not, you know, how cool it feels to you. Hey everyone, uh, two days later, Michael here with uh, a digression and uh, an update or a clarification. So first the digression, um, and I don't care if this is apocryphal, it's, a, it's still an amazing quote by uh, uh, Maynard Keynes that um, something to the effect of when you're faced with new information, you change your opinion. And so I've uh, I've had one of these, um, referring specifically to the conversation that uh, we we're just having with Nick about the importance of well the relative importance of rotational weight at the rim of the wheel uh, to weight anywhere else on the you know wheel bike rider system. Uh, Nick's position, of course, as he just explained, was that it is no more important where uh, where the weight is located. And I was under the impression um, that rotational uh, mass at the the rim of the wheel was was more costly than anywhere else. So, um, having spoken to Nick, I, I went to uh, speak with my um, my go to physics expert, uh, Dr. Alex Klotz of the University of um, California, and uh, he he's always my my kind of call a friend when uh, when it comes to physics, and so we had a, a good chat about uh, well the physics of uh, of wheels and bicycles and uh, and the energy costs or power costs depending how you look at it of the, all of these things. And um, uh, following our conversation, I'm now convinced that uh, um, it doesn't really matter where that mass is. It doesn't matter if it's spinning. It doesn't matter if it's on your bike. Um, all mass is going to contribute to the the cost of accelerating or decelerating your bicycle. If you disagree, I want to hear from you, and I want you to also draw me a free body diagram and uh, and show your work. Okay, back to the show. And I think if that were the case, we'd be seeing tri bikes that were faster for being lightweight rather than everyone focusing on aero. Like it's it's no oh, sure. surprise or no secret that tri bikes are typically heavier than road bikes. So there's a reason for that. Yeah, and I mean, there you know there's. You can do the math and find out what penalty you'll have for what weight in what situations going up what hills. And for the pros who are worried about seconds, they, you know, they'll spend the money to drop 100 grams off of something. And, you know, we work hard to make our parts no heavier than they have to be, um, considering the mechanical inputs we want to have, the safety margins we want to have and so forth. But, you know, and, and it's it's hard to educate the consumer about that because it's really easy to hold two things and tell which one is lighter, it's very difficult to, you know, say, oh, I can tell I'm going faster. I can tell this is more aerodynamic. You can't detect those things in practice, really, um, sadly. Yeah, you can only if you're really paying attention to the very details. And I, I totally agree with you. And I think that, you know, the the weight, the overall system weight has been a, a red herring well, people who've been, you know, savvy have been have known that the that the weight of a TT bike is or triathlon bike is is a bit of a red herring for uh, for quite some time now. But um, obviously, there's still some misconceptions floating out there for sure. And their entire company is based on the concept of low weight being faster, so it's in their best interest to continue pushing this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fun. Like it's 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 fun to like feel your bike and feel how light it is. Like that's the first question still anyone will ask or like they'll find out, Oh, you make bike parts. Oh, so like how heavy are they? It's like, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't care. Awesome. Well, Nick, this is, I think a, an excellent place to, uh, to wrap things up. We always give folks an opportunity to, uh, to mention their, you know, whatever it is that they're working on. Obviously tri rig is your, is your jam. Is there anything cool or special coming out that uh, our listeners ought to know about? I mean, we we always have stuff we're working on, but nothing I can I can really talk about at the moment. But um, you know, we we tease stuff occasionally um, on the site or across social. We're at Tririg across the board, um, and the site's Tririg.com, and that's where you can find everything. T R I R I G. Cool. I think my next uh, my next purchase from Tririg is going to be the your your new longer cups, which I'm super excited oh, about. The best. Yeah. The scoops. The scoops. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, they're rad. They feel amazing. They're really, really cool. Yeah, we we actually rode the 3D prototypes. Like, not the safest thing in the world. <laughs> do, don't test. don't like try this at home. Printer. No, do not try this at home. But um, they they held up, man, and they were super super comfortable. So yeah, that's a that's something we're really really happy about. We're always interested in front end stuff for yeah. sure. Yeah, well, uh, that'll be that'll be my next my next splurge. Right on. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Nick.